0: Well, good morning. Alan is not here and so I have not had a chance to tell him thank you yet for finishing up 2 Timothy last week. By doing that, that means we can start on our new study today. And so today, we are going to embark on a study of the book of the Revelation. Um, It is a phenomenal book. Um, And really the, the, the awesomeness of the book is captured in verse one. Because it is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Not being revealed as he was in his first advent when he came as an infant in order to to live and to be able to save mankind. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ in his deity. It is in his majesty where he is going to cleanse the earth. He is going to judge the devil. He is going to judge the wicked. And he is going to reign. And as it says, he is going to reign forever and ever now we're not going to start on any of that this week because before we get into the book of revelation we need to hit pause for a moment and go back over and review hermeneutics how is it that we are to read how is it that we are to interpret how is it that we are to understand prophetic language. When we read the book of Revelation, we're going to run into a lot of symbolism. We're going to run into uh, what, what the Apostle John, he's going to say there was a sign in heaven. And we're going to, to see many things. We're going to run into numbers. How do you deal with numbers? How do you understand them? And so this morning, I'd like to start with What's the purpose of Revelation? And then we'll get into how do we actually interpret what it is that we're going to be reading. So first, let's pray. Father, thank you for revealing so much to us. We would know nothing of you. We would know nothing of your plan. We would know nothing, really, we would not even understand anything about ourselves were it not for your word how you um, reveal to us who you are, how you reveal to us who you created us to be, that you are in fact the sovereign ruler of the universe. You are the rightful owner of everything that is. And Father, as as we come to this book, we come to it humbly And we ask that you would instruct us that you would teach us that you would show us how to understand what it is that you have revealed because you've revealed it in order to make it known not to make it hard there are some things that are difficult and there are some things that we're going to need help in order to be able to navigate through thank you for the gift of your holy spirit who is to guide us into all truth and so lord we look to you this morning with grateful hearts grateful that we have been rescued from the wrath that is to come help us to to truly understand the the terrible future that awaits for those who deny you who reject you and at the same time help us to live in gratitude for the incredible blessedness that awaits for those whom you have rescued and adopted. In Jesus' name, amen. What is the purpose of revelation? That is not a rhetorical question. What is revelation? What is it? A vision? Proclamation? I'm not trying to put words in your mouth. I'm trying no, to I, make... I, I don't even know what I'm I had, it's to say. in my head. But no, um, the revealing something. I don't know. Revealing something. What does it mean to reveal something? Unveiling. It's unveiling. The purpose of revelation is not to conceal a matter. Revelation, by definition, is the uncovering of something that has previously been hidden or unknown... Or undiscovered. God is the great revealer. How is it that we know anything about creation? God has revealed that. He has told us what happened with creation. How it was done. He's told us exactly how it was accomplished. How is it that we understand anything about God? It's because he has chosen to reveal himself. Now, revelation is not a a one-time event. So, for instance, uh, in the beginning, well, here, we talk about God's Word. We talk about the Bible. Was the Bible written by one human author? No, there were many men Who were involved they were the human pens for the books that make up this book were were they was that revelation all given at one time how long of a span was covered by boy i'm getting loud how much time was covered in the writing of the word of god 1500 years When did Moses live? So Moses is about 3,500 years ago. But when was the last book written? First century. All of the New Testament was written in the first century. In fact, we're going to get into There there is a discussion as to when the book of the Revelation was actually written. And depending on where you put that date is going to depend, is is going to give great input into how you actually interpret the book. If you hold to an early date for the book of Revelation, there's two dates that are generally given. One is in the late 60s. AD and the other is in the late 90s AD now there is a reason why those two dates exist what's the reason what event is going to be the what event do those dates bracket well actually Jesus was before either one of them 70 AD AD, because 70 what happens in 70 AD You have the destruction of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple. And so if if you are the one who believes that um, the judgments that are spoken of in Matthew 24, for instance, in in the Olivet Discourse, if you are one who holds that the second coming of Christ occurred in 70 A.D., you have to have the book of Revelation written before 70 A.D. It still has to be future from the book of Revelation, right? If, on the other hand, you look at the judgments that are coming, that are that are discussed in the book of Revelation, as still being future, then that allows for the later date. We'll get into all of that in detail here in coming weeks. The Bible was written by multiple people over a period of about 1,500 years. Now, God didn't just have a data dump back in the beginning. It's not like he had a hard drive and he, he gave it all to us on, a, on an external flash drive or whatever that he could download everything and hand it to us so that we started off with this little disk or whatever that we have all of the truth that God has exposed and revealed over the course of centuries. He didn't do that. He chose to give it progressively. And so, the book of Revelation is the capstone of the revelation of God. Now Charles, a couple of weeks ago, made a comment that Revelation is an old man's book for teaching. And there is is actually great truth to that. Because with, with the book of Revelation, what we're going to end up doing is taking a bunch of threads That started back in Genesis and the Old Testament. And we're going to follow those threads through because they tie together in the book of Revelation. There are over 250 direct or indirect references to the Old Testament in the book of Revelation. There's 22 chapters. That means there's on average over 10 references to the Old Testament in every chapter. And so this is not something where you can come in and simply start with Revelation 1.1 and restrict your understanding of what God is actually revealing just from that book. We would be... So when it comes to Revelation, there is some assembly required those three words that you dread to see on a, on a toy that you're getting for your kid, right? Some assembly required, meaning I need a master's degree in mechanical engineering to know how to open the package, right? God has not made it that difficult. We're going to run into things that there are good men, godly men who come to different conclusions as to how to understand something in particular. But God has given us the tools that we need to be able to go through and read what he has revealed and come to understand it. He's given us the totality of his word and he's given us his Holy Spirit. Now that doesn't mean that we can just sit back and cherry pick. It does mean that we need to be diligent and we need to be ready to dig so that we can understand and really appreciate as we go through the book of revelation and you start to see god's purposes that were ordained before the foundation of the earth before any of this stuff came to pass god has had this plan all the way from eternity past and to see how all of the events of time now come together and they begin to all of a sudden uh, as more and more is coming in you begin to see the majesty and the awesomeness of God and of his plans. We would be completely in the dark if God didn't pull back the curtain to reveal what's going on. And so we have that, and we have the Holy Spirit to guide us into all truth. Is anybody intimidated by the book of Revelation? There's a lot of stuff in there. And so at the very beginning, at the very beginning, we need to talk about how is it, what tools do we have, what has God given us, so that we can understand what it is that He's telling us. Because again, the purpose of Revelation is to unmask truth, not hide it. God's not playing hide the ball. He's giving us what we need to understand. There is a verse in the Old Testament that is sometimes quoted when it comes to um, prophecy. And that's Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to God. Everybody heard that verse? Everybody read that one? Is that the whole verse? No, it's not. What's the rest of it? as right the secret things belong to god but the things revealed belong to us and our sons forever that we may obey the words of this law there are some things that god has not told us if you hear somebody as has happened we were having a discussion at home a couple of weeks ago about the last great date that was set for the return of Jesus Christ. Now, some of you men in this room should remember that weekend greatly because it was happening while we were having a men's prayer retreat. The day fell on the Saturday that we were up at our men's prayer retreat. And yet, as I look around the room, I'm still seeing many of the men Who were there at that prayer retreat it didn't happen did it and in fact what happens when people when men make the decision that somehow they know better than God when Jesus said no one knows except the father then why would men step in to say well I know Everybody remember that event? Y'all really? Okay. Do you remember the mocking when Sunday morning came? And it hadn't happened? You see, the fellow, go ahead, Joe. Yes. What date was it? Oh, it was a date in May, and I want to say. Oh, it was Harold Camping. Harold Camping came up with the date. It was a May. It was a Saturday in May, and it was probably, I don't know, 15 years ago? He had two dates, didn't he? That was second guess. Yeah, that was guess, that was round two. That was round two. He had made a mistake in his math the first time. Wasn't he pretty elderly as I recall? Well, by the time the second one, the question is, wasn't he really elderly? Which, I want to be careful as I answer that question. <laughs> He was a lot older the second time, that is correct. And uh, he is no longer living. Um, I can remember in the, in the ramp up to that, uh, he had convinced many that that was happening. People sold their homes so that they could buy billboards to talk about that the end was coming. Can you imagine the waking up the following morning and you've given away everything that you had with the hope of rescuing people from the wrath to come and wake up and you're not in heaven. You're still here. And you're going to have to face people who look they're mockers they're going to mock anyway but the idea christ god is defamed when we set something forward as being brought from him and it doesn't happen when we proclaim the truth as God has proclaimed the truth then you let those chips fall but when we intervene and all of a sudden now we put in our understandings and supersede what God has actually said to be true that brings dishonor to the name and that is not to be allowed and so yes sir May twenty-first, twenty eleven. Thank you. I'm sorry? kitchen. You know what? If he had been right, how thrilling that would have been. How thrilling it would be. You see, that's one of the things, when we get into the later parts of the book of Revelation, we, has God revealed exactly what heaven is going to be like? He hasn't. Then why not? Well, the fact of the matter is, with our minds, I doubt we could even comprehend it if he, beyond the glimpses that he gives who in here knows what it is to worship god face to face with the absence the absolute absolute absence of sin and having no hangover of the effects of sin i can't even imagine that and that's what eternity is going to be like and so again the things that he has given He is given so that we can understand that we can worship Him for the incredible majesty that He is. So, what establishes the meaning of a text? Who determines? Let's let's narrow that question in just a little bit. Who determines the meaning of a text? Say it louder. Okay. The author determines the meaning. Now, that is, we need to buy into that lock, stock, and barrel. Right, because the idea how many of us have been to a Bible study and the question may be well intended but when you go to a Bible study and you run into the question what does this text mean to you has anybody ever experienced that yeah does it matter what the text means to you No. Does it matter what the text means to a group of you? No. Does it matter that the the text agrees with an interpretive grid, a lens that we can look through in order to understand what is written? No. No. What determines the meaning of the text is what the author means. And when it comes to the scriptures, that means that the meaning is determined by God. It means what God intends for it to mean. Not us, not anybody else. What does God intend? And let's take a a step back. Where did language come from? Who invented language? Did did Adam and Eve invent language? God gave language. Language is God's invention. God invented grammar. I don't say that so that the grammar Nazis can all of a sudden be encouraged and and, carry on a crusade. But the fact of the matter is, God invented grammar. He invented syntax. That's S Y N T A X X, not S-I-N-T-A-X, right? God invented that. Why did God invent language? He is. He is a communicating God. Pardon me? He is the word. Okay, he is the word. The point is, is that God, in order to be able to communicate with his creation, and specifically when it comes to language, he's wanting to communicate with mankind. We are created in his image. We were created for him. And so he invented a way for him to be able to communicate with us. And originally the world was under one language and then in Genesis you have the Tower of Babel and you have all of a sudden God confuses people with multiple languages so that for instance if we were to take the people that are here today and break them up by family group and now each one of you families you all speak a different language than every other family present here in this room what is going to tend to happen if all of a sudden we cannot understand each other, and the only people we can understand are the people in our group. Separate. Yeah, you end up separating. And God drove people apart just by changing that. The fact remains, though, is that God uses language, and since God is the inventor of language, and He knows exactly which word to use, He knows exactly which tends to use. He knows exactly which, um, you know, to use an indicative, to use an imperative, to here, here's here's the way things are versus here's a command versus here is a um you know, another different type of command. He knows how to say this is something that happened in the past for once. He knows how to say, you know, this is something that's happening in the future. He knows how to say this is something that's happened back here, but the effects of it carry on. God understands every bit of that. And so when he communicates, he's communicating what he wants us to understand and he's using words so that we can understand. Dave. Yep. So the point that Dave is bringing up, there's there's an underlying principle here when it comes to Scripture. There is a meaning. God intended one thing. There may be a lot of applications for what God is saying. There is one meaning. Does that explain to some degree then why we see so many principles in the New Testament. When when God says, don't just look out for your own interests, look out for the interests of others. Now that's a command. But it's also a principle. You can take that principle and you can apply it to all kinds of different situations. So that, you know, Christianity isn't a matter of just having a long, long, long checklist as to how to act, how to think. There are two basic schools of interpretation. One is going to look and and say, uh, I want to deal with this one first, just to get it out in the open. and. We can talk about it and then we can pass on from it frankly. One is called the allegorical school. The allegorical school of interpretation is not concerned as much with what the text says. Very often they are looking at what is the meaning behind the text there's you know there's there's a secret meaning here there's there's really something that's behind that that this is alluding to now this originated in the second century and frankly the person who actually drove this was augustine he took this and he was looking for you know what is the meaning behind the meaning And there's an emphasis on on symbolism. There's an emphasis on on, on using metaphors. And there's a problem when you're looking for the meaning behind the meaning. And that is that you often will obscure what God is actually saying. When we are looking for something beyond um, what is written, you can end up losing what god has actually said and who becomes the the arbiter of how to interpret a particular passage because if you look at something and you come up with your with an allegorical representation and someone else comes up with a different one how in the world do you tell who's correct you can't get it from the text because you've bypassed what a, a literal meaning might be. And now you're, you're, you're substituting something that, frankly, God never intended for you to go. Those who hold to an allegorical interpretation often do not use it exclusively. Exclusively. So for instance, when you have the angel Gabriel coming to Mary and saying, you are going to have a son, the power from on high is going to come upon you and you are going to get pregnant and you are going to give birth to the son of God outside of the normal realm of human reproduction. most who hold to an allegorical interpretation will interpret that literally did mary get pregnant without having sexual relations yes did she give birth to the son of god yes she did but yet when you look all of a sudden when it, when they talk about and uh, and these, these events the, this is going to be the outbreaking all of a sudden for some reason uh, some other things start coming into play and so the danger here when it comes especially to prophetic passages you can end up off the reservation very quickly words have meaning When you use, all right, let me, it is really cold right now. I am freezing. How would you take, how would you interpret what I just said? (laughs) Allegorically. What did I just use? What did I just use? I just used a figure of speech. So if I say that I am freezing, do any of you really need to get a thermometer and come up and take my temperature to see if I am actually at th- below 32 degrees Fahrenheit? No. Now, see, and everybody laughed when I just said that because that's kind of silly, isn't it? what does it mean to freeze does everybody understand what it means to freeze you know actually it does depend on the context now doesn't it if a police officer points a gun at me and says freeze that means something entirely different than me going into my freezer at home and pulling out a piece of ice from the freezer right Now we can laugh about all of that because we actually understand what the word means in those different contexts. If I take fresh water and I put it in an environment that is zero degrees Fahrenheit, what is going to happen to that water? It's going to freeze. Minus 15 this morning in Nome. That's pretty cold. <laughs> you see, the reason that we can talk about all of those things is that even when I'm using a figure of speech, you know what I mean because the word has Meaning. So when, you, when it comes to, to, to interpreting prophetic texts, looking for a meaning behind the text, that is a way to take your, your train, your interpretive train, and run it right off the track. And who knows what you end up with. Now there's another school of interpretation, and that is the literal interpretation. And what that means is that when we look At God's Word we look at the grammar we look at the syntax we look at the meanings of the word and not just the meaning from today it's going back to the meaning that that word had when it was written now we all know that too now don't we because words change I used to think that being sick meant that I was running a fever that that was something that was generally bad and then one of my kids came home one day and said that's just sick and he meant it where it was a good thing I'm glad that I'm getting old because it means I'm closer to heaven and I don't have to put up with that nonsense anymore (laughs) so what's the historical context how was that word used then? If you have a, how many people in here still use a King James Bible? You still using a King James? I thought you were. King James, i got to tell you, there's a beauty to, that, to the Old English in a lot of ways. But when you get into 1 Corinthians and it talks about your conversation of life, what does that mean? Because conversation meant something different in 1611 than it does today. And so when you read that, you have to not put on your hat of how do I understand this today? It is how was that word used in the 1600s? So when it talked about your conversation of life, it was talking about your manner of living. That's what it meant. Not you just talking, it was your your manner of living. That's just using English. We need to understand that the Bible was not written in English. It was written in Hebrew. It was written in Aramaic. Parts of it were in Aramaic. The New Testament is in Greek, Koine Greek. And so we need to go back and understand what did those words mean when they were written? There's a, there's a basic saying when you, when you talk about using the literal, grammatical, historical means of interpretation. If the normal sense makes good sense, seek no other sense, lest you end up with nonsense. Again, it's taking words at their normal meaning. It recognizes that you have symbols and figures of speech. But you can understand those figures of speech because you can understand the normal meanings of words. And one of the things that we're gonna run into right away is there are many things in the book of Revelation where John is trying to describe something. Frankly, he's trying to describe something he's never seen before. He's looking off into the future and now we even have an idea don't we because of the day in which we live we have an idea of just how far into the future that John is looking and so he's going to be seeing things that's why when you see him say and I saw as it were whenever you see that he sees something and he's trying to come up with a way to explain it to somebody else how would you explain um, See, it's hard for us because we live in this time. So we would ha- I'd have to make something up. How would you explain a slafage? Yes, I did just create that word. I just made it up out of thin air. And, and you guys are all looking at me and you're going, what in the world are you talking about? That's the point. That's exactly the point you have absolutely no frame of reference to understand what I just said. And so if I was trying to explain it to you, it, frankly, it would be impossible for me. Because what do I have to do in order to be able to even come up with it for you? I've got to be able to picture it somehow, right? And so again, when you see John say, as it were, he's trying to use language that he knows in order to describe something that he is seeing for the first time often in the the book of Revelation not often but we are going to see and I saw a sign in heaven very often there's going to be an explanation as to what that sign is in the context we're going to run into that in chapter one we're going to see some symbols in chapter 1. And later in chapter 1, what do we get? The explanation as to what that meant and what it was. So, context, to, to quote somebody from our congregation here, who I imagine got it from someone else in our congregation here, context is king now that means there are there are three different contexts that we want to get our heads wrapped around one is going to be the immediate context now where am i going to find the immediate context we're going to get that from the verses surrounding that statement right so, the immediate context is that book. Probably the, the verses immediately preceding or immediately following. That's our immediate context. What would be meant by the larger context? Other referrals to it, other parts of the book. Okay, so we've got the whole Bible, the whole counsel of God. We've got the use of perhaps this term in other places. Perhaps we're even going to run into, uh, in the book of Revelation, we're going to encounter a beast. And this beast has got seven heads and ten horns. Is the book of Revelation the first time we encounter a beast that has ten horns? No. No. Where does it come from? That, oh yeah. Oh, and all of a sudden now, well, that's talking about Daniel. And so, we can go back, what, how, what was the context of Daniel's vision of that, and were any explanations given to Daniel as to what he was seeing? Now, we can take that, and now we can use that to help us understand What this is, are we talking about the same um, sign? Are we talking about the same symbol in the book of Revelation? And then how do those correlate so that we can understand? So it's using the whole counsel of God. Again, if you've got 250 references to the Old Testament, then what do you think we're going to be doing often while we're studying the book of Revelation? Oh yeah, we're heading back. We're heading back. Because these things, God has exposed them over time and in history. And when we talk about history, we actually run into the third context, which is the historical, cultural context. Ellen. Before you go, Behold the Lamb of God right. who so takes away the sin of the world. literal interpretation. We don't guess what is the Lamb of God. Mean. We go back to Exodus and the Passover and we know. Mm-hmm. It has one meaning. It's literal but it's figurative. Yes. Good point. Did everybody hear that? Everybody heard that? So Jesus, and again, there are a number of those that are used with Jesus, right? Where he is the lion of the tribe of Judah. Okay, that's used to describe him. What's a lion? What does a lion represent often in Scripture? You know, he is, the lion is the king of beasts, Right? So again, Alan's point is, 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 is spot on. Again, there are things where it's a figure of speech. Uh, the one that Alan used was, was John the Baptist seeing Jesus, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We can understand what the Lamb of God is because that term is used regularly in Scripture. And if we were to take that wooden literal. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, and, and, and again, we're going to run into this in chapter one. No, that's not going to be chapter one. This one's going to be later, where we see Jesus in heaven who is appearing as a lamb that has been slain. There was a hand over here, Rick. Yeah, it would. Exactly. And so again when you talk about historical cultural, we're going to run into that in chapter 2 when Jesus says him who overcomes I will give a white stone. Now, To us, that means absolutely nothing. Okay, I'm gonna get a rock. (laughs) Unless you understand what a white rock meant to them. When you had somebody who was victorious in an athletic event, they were given a white rock that was their ticket To get into the celebration. After the fact. So now all of a sudden. To him who overcomes. That's my golden ticket for Willy Wonka land. I get to go in. I get to be a part of the party. Afterward. Why? Because I overcame. And I was willing to be faithful unto death. That I may receive the crown of life. And so again, there are things here, when we begin to understand those things, all of a sudden, now I I get what it was that he's referring to here. All of a sudden, you know what? I'm looking forward to getting a white rock. So there are four basic principles for proper interpretation. Number one, interpret the passage the prophetic passage literally now that does be, use the literal meaning of words remember that signs and metaphors represent something that is literal the lamb of god has literal meaning because lamb those individual words have meaning and when you put them together it, it, it communicates a picture the Apostle John could have used he could have taken up a whole lot of space in, des, in describing the iniquity and the rampant immorality of Jerusalem prior to the salvation of the Jews he could have gone into all kinds of detail and instead He can say, they're like Sodom, and they're like Egypt. And all of a sudden now, what just happened? By saying Sodom, oh, I've got all kinds of references now that come directly into play, and he did it with one word. One word. Again, God is the master communicator. Have you ever thought about it? Our, our preaching time here goes for an hour, and depending on who's preaching, it may go for a little longer than that. <laughs> and we may be talking about one verse. You can, uh, and, and, and frankly, you can have multiple messages on the same verse. That's how much unpacking you can do. And that's how economical God is with language. He is concise. He is able to communicate things in an incredible economy of language that we can take and unpack and unpack and unpack and keep on going. So again, not wooden interpretation. So one of the things that we're going to be looking at as we, as we study the book of Revelation, is this a figure of speech? Is this a metaphor? What is it that we're, that, that we're seeing? Is this hyperbole? And then how, how, how do we understand that? There's a quote here that I came across in my reading. Scripture is sufficiently clear in context to express what God promised to do. Scripture is also sufficiently complete in context to establish valid expectations of the future acts of God. It is clear enough, and it is complete enough. We have what we need in order to be able to understand what God has said and understand what it is that he is saying. Secondly, we interpret by comparing prophecy with prophecy. So again, we're going to be going back to the Old Testament frequently in order to be able to see how these particular things have been used and spoken of in the past, because many of them are carrying through. In fact, as we study the the New Testament, and specifically this book, all of a sudden, we're going to be able to understand much more about the Old Testament. Do you know that in the book of Ezekiel, God lays out the the, the whole thing for the end of time in 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 a skeleton? Ezekiel 36, you have the new covenant. Ezekiel 37, you have two visions. You have the valley of the dry bones. That's talking about the resurrection of national Israel. Then you have the parable of the two sticks. One of the, the northern kingdom, one Judah and Benjamin, and that they are tied together again, never again to be separated. So the lost tribes, they're lost no more. They are found and they are restored. Chapters 38 and 39, you talk about Gog and Magog. That's talking about the battles where mankind in general comes together to fight against Almighty God, and God wipes them out and doesn't even break a sweat. And then chapters 40 to 48, you have a a view of the millennial kingdom. You see, so many will teach that the millennial kingdom is only found in Revelation chapter 20. Can I tell you, the only thing that we get from Revelation chapter 20 that is unique about the millennial kingdom is how long it lasts. A millennium, a thousand years. And when God says, I think it's six times in seven verses... It's either seven times in six verses or six times in seven. I think it's six times in seven that it's going to last for a thousand years. I think we probably ought to understand that it's going to last for a thousand years. And we're going to see as to why why that's going to happen. So, the length is given in Revelation, but you will find all kinds of discussion And references to the Millennial Kingdom in Isaiah, in Jeremiah, and extensively in Ezekiel, as well as some of the other Old Testament prophets. So, prophecy and prophecy. Third, interpret in light of possible time intervals. You know, we're talking about time. We're now at five minutes to ten. So, the most common one that's given for this is from Isaiah 61. So, let's flip to Isaiah 61. You're going to recognize it as soon as you see it, because Jesus himself is going to use this passage of Scripture. Now, this is this is revelation that is being given to Isaiah. And when did Isaiah live? We're talking back in the 700s BC. So 700 years before Jesus, Isaiah writes this. Uh, Isaiah 61:1, "The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord." Now, Jesus in Luke chapter 4 quotes this he has taken the role the scroll of isaiah he reads this passage and then he rolls it back up he hands it to the attendant and says this prophecy is being fulfilled today in your hearing is that where it stops in isaiah 61 no it's not because isaiah continued on It's not just to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, giving them a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of a spirit of fainting. Why did Jesus stop at... To proclaim the favorable year of the Lord, because that's as far as he was going in that advent. There is coming a day where the day of vengeance of our God is coming, it just wasn't then. And so the example that's often given is that when you're standing at a distance and you see um, a series of hills or mountains. In fact, we can do that here. We can stand in the valley. We've got to probably go a little lower because we're too close from here. But when you get out in the valley and you look to the east, you can see foothills and you can see mountains. Now, how much distance is there between the foothills and the mountains are they immediately next to each other no there's a distance between them and so we can see that why because we are further down the freeway than the people were to whom this was originally written the people who Isaiah was writing to are back down here in Sacramento we have an opportunity now to where we've gotten up to Blue Canyon and so we can see because we have the passage of time that yes there are these other events but there is a lapse there is a span between that and another event and if we're wise we'll realize that even now we could be living in a time where the same things are happening. We see things that are stacked, and from our perspective, we would look at this and say, these are going to happen closely together. Where in fact, even in our day and time, there still may be a distance between those events. You'll also see that in Zechariah 9, 9 and 10. So let's, let's go ahead and let's look at Zechariah. I want you to get practice start practicing now. Go home and start reinstituting the Bible drills like we used to have in Sunday school years and years ago. And don't use the tabs. Just get used to finding those little guys that we call the minor prophets. Zechariah 9, verse 9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem and the bow of war will be cut off and he will speak peace to the nations and his dominion will be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Now, when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, the colt, the colt of a donkey, the foal, was that a fulfillment of Zechariah 9:9? Yes, it absolutely was. Zechariah puts verse 10 right after verse 9. He's just he's in a flow here. Yet, do we have it to where now Jesus' dominion is from sea to sea? Is Is that true literally? No, it's not. Is that day coming? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And so here again, you have something that's being presented in the same flow. And yet, there are centuries that separate those events fourthly and quickly interpret figurative language scripturally again we use the con- we use the immediate context the larger context the historical and cultural context and we go back and relish in the old testament and bring forward Um, those and and follow the threads so a lot of the understanding of the book of Revelation we're going to go back we're going to find a thread and we're going to follow that thread and see then how it weaves into the tapestry of God's not only revelation but of God's purpose and his plan for the nations and for people questions now I don't know about you I am so excited I can't hardly see straight So if I come up to you, if you're looking at me later and I've got this look, all right, it's not because I'm just going weird. It is because I really am excited to dig into this book because it magnifies our God and it magnifies our Savior. Let's pray. Lord, the day is coming and how we pray that it's coming soon. Where in fact you are going to come and you are going to rule over this planet you're going to expunge sin you're going to set up a kingdom that'll never end and how we look forward to that thank you that you've made known the last chapter to where you win and you fully conquer and extinguish sin you're going to make a new heaven and a new earth that will be in no way contaminated by sin ever. And how we look forward to that. How we hope in that. And Father, we praise you because you are the God who is sovereign and supreme. No one can thwart, no one can set aside what you declare. Thank you that you have been patient with us Thank you that you are still drawing men. And we know that because the end hasn't come yet. Lord, help us to be faithful. Help us to be salt and light. You have made us to be able to live in this time, whatever that time is going to be. Father, help us to be faithful, that we would proclaim your truth without any fear of man, without any fear that we would value you so highly, that we would choose faithfulness, over fear. That we would be faithful to death if that is what comes. Lord, thank you that you are the great rescuer. (coughs) Help us to worship you aright this morning as we come to, to bring our praises into your presence in singing, in hearing your word, in praying to you, and in hearing your word proclaimed. In Christ's name, amen.